over the next several weeks, few months, we're going to be going through the book of Psalms. You'll need a Bible for that. And these guys have some. They're going to make their way toward the back. And if you need a Bible for today, then get their attention. We'll get one of those to you. And keep that and bring it back with you each Lord's Day as we look at God's Word together. Today we begin a new series in the book of Psalms. Now, for most of us, I think, and I know at least for me, some books have more initial appeal than others, depending on your particular wiring. I gravitate toward the letters of the New Testament because they're straightforward teaching, and it's New Testament teaching at that, as opposed to stories, or as we have in the Psalms, poetry. I'm not naturally poetic. And so the prose sections of the Bible are my natural go-tos. Others of you are creative, musical, and you may write and love poetry. And so in the body of Christ, we have prose types and we have poetic types, uh, and that can affect the kinds of books that we tend to gravitate to first. But even someone with my bent remembers that all of the types of books in God's Word are there for a unique purpose. And therefore, I want to know that purpose and then glean from those books all that I can to know God better and to reflect Him more accurately. Now, I said all of the types of books, instead of the more fancy term, which is genre in the academy, or genre if you're D.A. Carson, I usually refer to the different kinds of books of the Bible as different those different kinds as just that, kinds or types of books or categories of books rather than genre, because I've always seen the reason for which I pursued theological education as not so that I could use terms that most of us don't use every day, but rather I pursued education so I could learn and then translate seminary into English. The Psalms are the category, the genre if you prefer, of poetic books. I had a class in seminary called that, Poetic Books, and it covered what are sometimes called the, also called the wisdom books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. The Psalms are most often in the form of prayers. They are all in poetic form, and they were sometimes set to music. In today's introductory message, we'll see how the book of Psalms is structured But for now, I've asked you to turn to the first psalm, which we're going to look at in depth next Sunday. Today, we're only actually going to look at, I'm going to have you look at in that chapter, just one word, the very first word, and that is the word blessed. One author has said of this word and its importance for our book, the book of Psalms, the first word of Psalm 1 captures well the intended purpose for the book of Psalms, blessedness. Blessed, as the first word in the Psalter, provides a significant clue to the message of the Psalms when the entire book is read with an overarching logic. The first word of the Psalm is a key word that runs through the Psalter from beginning to end. No single English word captures the full sense of this Hebrew word that's translated blessed. Those who are blessed are in a state of total well-being. They, they lack nothing. They're delivered from trouble. They have their material possessions and successful children. So no wonder they are blessed or, or happy. The Psalms are about how to experience this profound 
happiness. To be blessed literally means a state of well-being, to flourish, to prosper. It's what we might call the good life. Now, as we will see in our study, the Bible is about the fact that we are created for these good things, but Psalm also tells us why our world and our lives are in fact not like that, and what God is doing to restore us and the world that He has made. So today we are going to introduce this important book, and then in the weeks ahead we're going to pursue that theme of blessedness for which we give praise to God. Let's bow then and ask God to help us. Our Father, we thank You that we are here by Your divine appointment. I thank You for these brothers and sisters and friends who through their various circumstances through your work in their hearts, have caused us to desire to be here. Thank you for your book, the Word of God, that we have in front of us to instruct us. And as we start this marvelous book that you have included in the canon of your Word, Lord, help us to set the table, as it were, for a profitable time looking at this blessedness of which the book of Psalms speaks in the months ahead. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. You should have received an outline when you came in today, as each week, And I say, first of all, in that outline, that Psalms is a book of purpose. Part of the reason that many of us do not understand the Psalms is because we tend to separate them from one another, and we fail to see the big picture that the book of Psalms presents. In many ways, we have the same challenge uh, with the Psalms that we did a few years ago when we looked at the book of, of Proverbs. Namely, each Psalm appears like it can stand on its own, without reference to what goes before and comes after, much like Proverbs is a collection of short aphorisms, wisdom sayings that can appear to be isolated truth bombs, to use a popular current phrase, like you might find in Poor Richard's Almanac, a stitch in time saves nine or a penny saved is a penny earned. But we saw when we looked at Proverbs that it actually has structure to it. And I think it helped our understanding. And likewise, the form in which we have our book of Psalms reflects purpose because it's ultimately given to us by our God who is never random, but does all things with purpose. We see that the book of Psalms is, in fact, a book of purpose in that, as I say in the outline, it's a structured book. Although there are a total of 150 different psalms, contrary to the way it can appear, they are not islands that are separated from what is around them. The book of Psalms is actually made up of five smaller books. Those 150 are divided into five smaller books. You see on the screen there that you have book one through book five and the the numbers of the psalm for each of those books in the, in the collection. Now, we know that these are separate books because they intentionally end in a similar way, all five of them, with all of them having praise and everlasting or forever and amen at the end of each of the five. So let me bounce through the end of each of those. The end of book one is in, in Psalm number 41. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. 
And then the end of book two, praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. The end of book three, praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Book four, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. From everlasting to everlasting, let all the people say, amen. And then in Psalm 145, my mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise His holy name again forever and ever. And then the entire book ends with five hallelujah psalms with which the entire book closes. And the very last of these psalms, number 150, is a grand doxology that includes the entire book. And so the book of Psalms that we have is actually a collection of collections of psalms that each comprise their own section of the book of Psalms. So in our series, we're not going to, you may be glad to know, have a sermon on each of the 150 uh, psalms, but rather I'm going to select some of the psalms from each of those sections. Now, these psalms were written by at least eight different individuals, but probably more. David wrote half of them, 75 of the psalms. Asaph wrote 12. The sons of Korah are credited with 10. Solomon wrote 2. Ethan 1. Heman 1. Moses actually wrote 1. And then there are 48, about one-third, that are not attributed to anyone in particular. And the writing of the Psalms spans as much as a thousand years. I mentioned that Moses wrote, he lived in the 15th century B.C. And so it goes from there, and some of the Psalms were clearly written after Israel returned to their land, after being held in captivity, some of you will know from uh, biblical history in the, what's called the Babylonian captivity in the 5th century B.C. But most were written around a thousand, with over half of the book comprised of Psalms of David and then his son Solomon, who lived at that time. The collections of Psalms were arranged in the five books, and many believe, probably correctly, that they were arranged into five in order to imitate the five books of the law of Moses, the first five books of your Bible. The law and Israel's devotion to it is, in fact, an important part of the background of the Psalms, as we'll see as we move forward. And so Psalms is a book of purpose. We see that in the fact that it is structured, but also we see it in that it's a developed book. It's structured, but also developed. Now, if you ask most people for the theme of Psalms, they probably say praise, and that would be a good answer. There's good reason to say that. We saw that each of the five books ends with praise, and the name of this book of Psalms in Hebrew is praises. We get our name Psalms because in 250 B.C., the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, and the Greek word for that Hebrew word is psalmoi. And so for English, they just transliterated it rather than translating it. Otherwise, the name of the book would be praises. But Psalms does not get to 
our praise is really in earnest until the last third of the book. Roughly the fifth and final of those five books, which go again from Psalm number 107 to 150. It's not until just before that that we first, in fact, find the word hallelujah. And some of you know that that word hallelujah means praise the Lord. We see before that commands to praise at the end of each of the first four books as we saw. But in the words of one author, while there are mentions of praise and commitments to praise, to praising the Lord throughout the Psalter, the key word hallelujah does not appear in the entire collection until Psalm number 104. The last 50 Psalms or so are filled with expressions of hallelujah, but not until Psalm 104. Much of the Psalter, in fact, then, is not praise. So here you got a book that's called Praises. It certainly has praise as a theme, but why would it be called Praises when two-thirds of it is, for the most part, not about that? Well, what you have is a book that is designed for praise. And that's what you see in the title of this series. You see it on the screen, a cantata, and I don't say a cantata of praise, I say a cantata for praise, and that's the title that you have at the top of your outline for today's message as well. And I say it that way for this reason. The book is for the purpose of praise. It's for praise, but that doesn't mean it's all praise or even that most of it is. Instead, the first two-thirds lead up to they crescendo into that last third, which is about praise. The first 100 or so psalms give us, hear this now, the reasons to praise. And then after that, it's all praise all the time. And we say it's a cantata for praise because about 30 years ago, a scholar wrote a helpful article in the Journal of Evangelical Theology called Psalms, a cantata about the Davidic covenant. You see in the Psalms the promises that were made that God covenanted with David for Israel, including his own kingship and the kingship of the Messiah who will follow in David's line in the future. And the backdrop for Psalms goes back to Genesis and then moves forward in biblical history. That scholar said the cantata analogy is helpful because it carries with it the idea that many of the pieces may not have been composed specifically for the cantata. Rather, compositions created for other reasons at other times have been woven together into a framework in order to address a particular subject. Scott Annual, someone with whom I go way back personally, who's written some very helpful material on the Psalms and to whose book I'm indebted for much of what follows, said this, a cantata is a musical composition in which a composer takes some previously composed songs, combines them with newly composed material, and weaves them together into a unified flow with a logical progression. Johann Sebastian Bach, for example, would often take previously composed chorales, rearrange and adapt them with his own material, and combine them into a unified, unified composition. And that's what we have in the book of Psalms, 150 of them, five books, arranged in a particular order to bring us to the point of praise by giving us the reasons for which that praise should come, should come forth. 
So Psalms uh, is a book of, of purpose. And I say in the outline, it's a book for growth. We're going to return to the purpose of praise in the final point in your outline in just a bit. But Scott points out something helpful regarding how the Psalms are designed to form us spiritually. It does this partly by moving us toward praise rather than just jumping into praise. And that moving toward praise has to take into account the truth, the reality, the real world that I'm living in with all of its junk. There has to be, if I'm going to have true praise of the Lord, I have to come to that praise with an honest understanding about myself, about those around me, and about the world that we all find ourselves in. So we sometimes are supposed to sing, as the psalms were often sung, hear this now, not to express what we have in our hearts, but rather to have our hearts formed by what we sing. That's how you can sing things from time to time that are somewhat dark because they take the varnish off of the fallen world for us and it forms within us a longing for a solution which of course we know God provides in Jesus Christ. And so Scott says typically we tend to use prayer and song to express what's already in our hearts but the biblical model one that continued among God's people until relatively recent times was that prayer and song were meant to form our hearts. In other words, we sing these inspired songs to create a consciousness of who and what we are rather than as expressions of consciousness already there. God intends these songs to shape and form who we are as His people. The book of Psalms is the longest book in your Bible. It contains more words than any other single book in the Bible and almost as many words as the entirety of the Apostle Paul's 13 letters in our New Testament. It's the Bible's most quoted book as well. And it's the only book whose contents are singled out by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament for us to minister to one another in gathered church worship as Pastor Larry read earlier from Colossians 3. And Jesus reminded us that it is just as inspired, it's just as authoritative. The book of Psalms is just as profitable as any other portion of Scripture. When Jesus said this just before He ascended back to the Father, having completed His earthly ministry, He said, everything must be fulfilled that is written about Me in, notice these three places, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now, those three represent the threefold division of the first part of your Bible for the Jewish arrangement of, of books. That is, they have the same number of books in the Old Testament that we do, 39. They arrange them a little bit differently, and they put them under these three headings. So when Jesus said, the law of Moses, the prophets, and and the Psalms, he's talking about these three, and he's saying everything that's written in each of those about me had to be fulfilled. Now, it says the, the Psalms there. Very often, those three divisions are, you'll, see, you'll read them written as 
the law, the prophets, and sometimes the writings. Here Jesus said the Psalms. You'll see it both ways. So why the, why the Psalms? Well, in that third category, the writings, Psalms is the first and the largest book. And so sometimes that category is just referred to as the Psalms. And so Psalms is a book of purpose. It's a book for growth. And I say, a book for praise. As we've seen, the book of Psalms is for praise. But it does not jump right to that praise, but spends a good while helping us internalize and to deal with the way things are and what God is doing about it, which then moves us to praise Him. In the first two-thirds of the book of Psalms, we have a presentation of the biblical worldview in personal and poetic expression. The biblical worldview. The view of the world from the view of God's perspective. And that's what you get in the first two-thirds. And that's why it's got all that, some of the dark stuff, but it's also got teaching for us about God. And so, because that is the case, I want to remind us of the components of the biblical worldview, and then, in doing so, look at some passages in the psalm, in the psalms that address uh, those components of the biblical worldview. Many of you have heard me say over the years that the biblical worldview is about three things. It is about creation, fall, and redemption. And that's what we find in the book of Psalms. And we say in your outline those three things. That it's a book for praise and it's about creation. And then secondly, it's about the fall. And thirdly, it's about redemption. Creation, fall, redemption. So let's remind ourselves regarding what each of those is for just a bit. Creation, fall, redemption, or another way to think about that is orientation, disorientation, reorientation. That in creation, God gave us an orientation to Him and the world in which He has has placed us. This is in creation, in that orientation, it's about who God is and what He expects from us. And so indeed, in the book of Psalms, you see this focus upon God, the Creator, the one about whom and with whom we all as creatures must deal. We were made by Him. We were made for Him. We received this orientation. We will see the effects of disorientation in a moment. So you've got creation. You've got orientation, who God is and what He expects from us. And in Psalm number 14, it says, The fool says in his heart that there is no God. Very early on in the book of Psalms, 14th Psalm, you have something that really encapsulates what Romans chapter 1 in your New Testament says, that everybody in fact knows that there is a God, and that those who deny God's existence, the Bible uses that term, fool. Romans chapter 1 does the same thing, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Foolishness in the Bible is not ignorance. Ignorance means I don't know. And all of us are ignorant of some things. Many of us are ignorant of a lot of things. 
We just don't know them. Foolishness is much, much worse. Foolishness is failure to appropriate, failure to apply what you do know. And so the Bible teaches that all know that there is the true and living God by virtue of creation itself, as we'll see and just be reminded in just a bit. But fools don't appropriate that. They don't apply that. They say there is no God. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. In Psalm number 19, famously, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. And so God is seen in general revelation, as theologians call it, in the creation itself, and only fools deny that. So Psalms is about the biblical worldview that begins with creation centered on God, but it's also about the fall. Not just orientation, but unfortunately, we live in a world that is disoriented, disorientation. And this is about who we now are and what our problem is. <laughs> That's what the fall is. That's what that aspect of the biblical worldview is, who we are and what our problem is. And so in the Psalms, fallenness is dealt with, and it's dealt with very forthrightly personal sin and fallenness, but also the fallenness around us, around us by which we are affected. So, for example, you have David's confession in the Psalms. After he committed grievous sin against the Lord, committing adultery, orchestrating the murder of the husband of the woman with whom he had committed adultery. And when he comes to his senses and he comes to the Lord to confess his sin, it's recorded for us in Psalm number 51. And David says, I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. And so you see dealings with personal sin as that second part of the biblical worldview, but you also see suffering being dealt with in a fallen world. Because fallenness is, yes, my sin and your sin, but it's also just living in a messed up world that's affected by that fallenness, disease and, and want and other kinds of suffering. And you see it dealt with very forthrightly. We will look in several weeks at Psalm number 88, but Psalm number 88, you can read that, the entire 18 verses of that psalm, and there is not a note, not a hint of light in that entire 18 verses. And it ends this way. Darkness is my closest friend. It's dealing with the world as it really is. And life as it really is. And sometimes how we really feel. So Psalms is about creation, orientation. It's about the fall, disorientation. Thanks be to God, it is also about redemption, reorientation. And if creation is who God is and what He expects from us, and disorientation is who we now are because of sin, and so what our problem is, then redemption and this reorientation is what God is doing about it. He's reorienting His world to its original design. In Psalm 2, 
we're introduced to His anointed one. And later we have passages that point toward that coming anointed one. Anointed one meaning Messiah, the Hebrew Mashiach. So famously in Psalm number 22, you have what's called a messianic psalm. And you'll remember that verse 1, the first line of Psalm number 22, Jesus quoted on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A little bit later in that psalm, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. So we are, as we go through our series in the book of Psalms, we're going to include not only psalms from each of the five books, but also psalms of various types within those books to help us see that it's indeed communicating the biblical worldview. So we have posted a description of this series on our website, but let me read it for you as we close out our message, and then we're going to observe the Lord's table together. (coughs) That description says, we often think of the book of Psalms as a disconnected collection of songs that are mostly focused on praise, but the 150 Psalms are deliberately arranged in five sections and praise is primarily reserved for the last third. The first 100 deal with themes, including dark ones, that are arranged to portray the goal of praising the Lord in the midst of enemies around us and sin within us. It's a cantata in five parts, whose poetry shapes our hearts and crescendos into the only appropriate response. Worship of the God who rules and redeems. Here's your take-home truth. Psalms shapes our hearts to move us to praise of our God. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for the privilege of being gathered before you as your people with your book opened before us. Thank you, Lord, for not leaving us in the dark and causing us to grope in the darkness, trying to figure out who you are and what you expect of us. Thank you, thank you for your guidebook for life and for eternal life in Scripture, in the Word of God. Lord, help us to love it then, because that is indeed what it is, the Word of the true and living God. Help us to heed it. Help us to heed it today and this week. And through this series, form our hearts so that they issue forth in praise to you who is worthy. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.